Well, we were traveling out west, my family, when I was growing up. I was 14, my brother was 12, and my sister was 7. And we were driving in a rented station wagon, decided to take on just a few things, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, and Colorado. There are quite a few national parks throughout that area. So we ended up not really calculating properly the distances between each of these parks and spent a lot of time in the car. And as you might know, children have to find ways to entertain themselves on long car road trips. Um, and this was pre-technology days, so we came up with a game, and that was to draw an invisible line on the bank, sort of the bench seat in the back of the station wagon, and that line marked off where nobody else could cross. That was your space, and nobody was allowed to sort of desecrate your space. Well, as you might imagine, on sort of the 200, 300-mile venture into the day, all of a sudden, little fingers started creeping across the line and little shoves started happening. And uh, I have to admit this because my siblings told me I could use this story if I shared with you the true confession that I, as the eldest child, believed it was within my rights to choose to lean in either direction or across them as I felt so led. So I am confessing, I do feel badly, that was the wrong thing to do. But nonetheless, as you might imagine, hands, shoves, leaning, all of a sudden fighting ensues, right? There's arguing, there's yelling, there's pushing, things escalate. And now that I'm a parent, I can imagine what my parents must have been thinking in the back, in the front seat of the car. Oh, no, here they go again, they're at it again. These kids fight, to fight. And isn't that true? Not only with kids, but sometimes it feels like in the world or in politics or ideological battles, even in our families or our own heart, sometimes we seem to fight to fight. The battle goes on. And I don't know about you, but I know that I, on many days, feel exhausted by it. I dream of a day when wars will cease, when weapons won't be needed. And I have some good news for you today, and that is in our Isaiah text, our reading for today, we find that there will come a day. There will come a day where all of that can happen. I want to give you a little background on Isaiah before we take a look at the text. Some of you know Isaiah, the name Isaiah means Jehovah saves. And that's really the theme of his writing, Jehovah saves. He tells he's actually from a princely line. He grew up in the court. He had the best training in the land. And despite the fact that he was part of the 1%, the wealthy and educated, he still looked out over, his, over the people of Judah where he was living and he said, he was that things were broken, things were wrong. The, he saw the pretense and the hypocrisy of the temple courts, and he also was aware of all the international strife going on and political conflicts within Judah. And he warned the people, God will judge uh, our nation. And this text that we're reading about in Isaiah is happening shortly before the Babylonians come in and take the people of Judah into exile. Isaiah, in his writing, talks about two kinds of comings, both of which we celebrate in this Advent season. The first coming is the coming of a Messiah. We hear about that in Isaiah 53, who comes as the suffering servant. 
as the one who is coming to take our sins away. But there's also a second coming foreshadowed in Isaiah. And that second coming is when that Messiah, we know to be Jesus, will come in power and in glory and will change everything. And that's what our text is talking about for today. So let's take a look at it together. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What we hear in this text is that the house of God, the house of Israel, is going to be the place that not only are the people of Israel going to come and worship, but all the peoples and all the nations are going to come up to the house of the Lord. Now, for us, that's not a surprising story. We hear about it later in our scriptures. But for the people in that time, the idea that all the nations were going to gather to celebrate and to praise their God was radical news that they would come. They thought the message was for the chosen people of God. But here Isaiah sees a time where it's extended to all the nations. And he's giving them a call to what is to come. I personally had a little hint of this scene in my story when I was back in graduate school at Gordon-Conwell. I had the opportunity to go over to Utrecht, Holland to a missions conference, and it was an enormous missions conference called Mission 90. Some of you may have heard of Urbana, which is a student-focused missions conference in the U U.S. Euro, the Mission 90 was the European version of Urbana. And while we were there, there were people gathered from all over the world. They were college students and young adults that numbered 9,000. There were translations going on of the messages in 12 different languages. And it was right after the wall um, had fallen in Berlin. And so the big emphasis of the conference was how to take the gospel east, into Eastern Europe, which just now was open to receive this good news. I remember being in that place, um, having to sleep in dorm rooms that were warehouses with a thousand cots per warehouse. Um, it was quite an experience. But being there, I recognized in my head, I had always known the church of Jesus Christ was universal. But all of a sudden, it was an aha moment. I realized deep in my soul that the message, the good news of Jesus' life death and resurrection, actually really is going to the ends of the earth. And we all stand together in that global family of God. It was awesome. So people like those people at Mission 90 are drawn together to worship God, to come to the house of the Lord. But is that all our text says? There's actually more to the story. We come together, we're drawn in so that we can have a movement to go out. And that's what we hear in this text. Jesus is coming and something new will happen.
Let's take a look at verse 4 together. That word of the Lord in verse 3 we hear about will come to judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This good news is that the word is coming, and the word comes with justice, but it's not just justice. When we think of a judge in a courtroom deciding what punishment to um, give out, this word judge in Hebrew is actually talking about to rule, that God will administer the world. The new reign is coming. And that's the promise of this second coming. And what we're told about that new world order that has harmony is that all violence and all battles are going to cease. All striving is over. There's a powerful peace that is promised in this text. And I think sometimes we forget how much we have to look forward to when Jesus returns and comes back to us. But there are people throughout history who have come back to this text in Isaiah and found that hope a lifeline to continue. Particularly, we think of the African Americans who gathered and used this as a spiritual, as a song of hope. They didn't have a lot of justice, but what they did have was a future hope of glory. So I want to invite you to join me and Leon as we lead you in a verse of Down by the Riverside and the chorus. So use your loud voice here with us. Let's sing together. I'm going to lay down my sword and shield down by the riverside, down by the riverside. Down by the riverside, I'm gonna lay down my sword and shield. Down by the riverside, to study war no more. I ain't gonna 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 study war no more. Gonna study war no more, ain't gonna study war no more. Well done. I think we have a lot more people for the choir, Leon. Um, well done. What I love about that text is it says, I ain't gonna study war no more. What it means is, not only are we not gonna have war, we're not gonna even need to learn about it or to study it or to teach it. It will be a former thing that has no relevance anymore. And that's an incredible idea, isn't it? Swords and spears, those weapons of destruction, of death, and of killing, now are going to be beaten into pruning hooks and plowshares. Now they're going to be used for life, to grow life, to cultivate life, to give life. We may say, well, I'm not walking around with a sword and a shield today. But we have other things we use, other instruments that could be retooled for God's work. One example of that is our words. Our words can be words to curse or words to bless and bring life. I have an example of that from a man that came to see me to tell me about his relationship with his father. 
And as we were sitting talking, he told me about what his dad had been like during the years he had grown up, even into his young adulthood. His father had been very critical of him. They had a really conflictual relationship, and he didn't have a lot of hope for his relationship with his father. But then his dad had a major health crisis, and he came to that sort of near-death experience moment, came back, and realized he was living on borrowed time. And something changed in this man. The father all of a sudden became kind, and he told his son, you know, you know that I love you. Son, you know that I'm proud of you. And as the son received those words from the father that he had longed for all his life but hadn't been given, he said, it was as if that older, former life of my dad didn't exist anymore. I received his love, and I found total forgiveness right there because the former things had passed. They weren't relevant anymore. Those words were life now. We have that opportunity, too. We're invited to live differently as a result of this text, and maybe even to look at what battles in our own heart might God be asking us to examine and maybe to lay down. The text tells us how to do this. Let's take a look together at verse 5. It tells us about walking in the light. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Well, I want you to begin that verse again as we look at it and insert your name there. So, O house of Jacob could be O house of Borden, O house of Morin. Let come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That invitation to walk in the light, we actually hear it throughout the pages of Scripture, but I love the way Ephesians 5 tells us more about what this means. This is how it defines being children who walk in the light of the Lord. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. The invitation here in Ephesians is being children of light are those that focus on what is good and right and true and trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We're told it's turning away from works of darkness and exposing them to the light. Well, what happens when we come into a dark room and we flick the switch? All of a sudden, we see what's there, right? And sometimes... We may rather not see what's there. If you go in my uh, sort of storage closet, I'd rather you not turn the light on. Well, the same thing can be true in our own human heart. Sometimes we don't want to bring the light in. We don't want to expose what's there. But here's the good news, my friends. When we turn the light on, healing and transformation can happen. That's precisely the moment where God's goodness comes through that light that is exposed the darkness. 
I'm going to share with you a few words from our good friend Fleming Rutledge, who some of us had the privilege of hearing speak here last week about the season we're now in, Advent. And she had this to say, Advent begins in the dark. We think of that baby in the manger, and we think of even the darkness within us, that there's something about the good news of the gospel that blows open any of the darkness that's holding us back, shining with intense light. And so we're invited to not participate in the darkness, but to pray God's light on our path, God's light on our need for him, and God's light on where he wants to access our hearts. Fleming also went on to invite us in Advent to take courageous inventory. She said to do self-examination of the sin and death that's in each of us and just to bring it to the light. Through Jesus Christ, we are saved, but God wants to more than that for us, not just to save us. God desires that we might be made whole and restored with him, made right with him and with others. His light is not a light that brings shame, condemnation, or despair. His light brings hope, healing, order, and restoration. He does that so that you and I can be light for others. Jesus is coming again. Let us walk in the light and be the light that overcomes the darkness. Amen.